Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey guys, this is Zach Twomley from When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks for stopping by, and I hope you enjoy this episode. When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, so I would encourage you to check out all of its constituent members if you want. And I would also encourage you to check out A History of England podcast by David Crowther, which is our podcast of the month, which basically means that we have to promote it to death until you guys eventually go and listen to it. If by some strange freak of nature occurrence you haven't listened to A History of England yet, because let's be honest, it's one of the benchmarks for a historical podcast narrative these days, then please do go and check that out. It gave me, when diplomacy fails, its first break, so... I would really encourage you to go and check him out. Finally, I would like to remind you that Zach to Cambridge is still a thing. If you would like to support me going to Cambridge to do a PhD course in history, then I would really encourage you to support me on wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie and click the donate button to give as little as $2.50 a month, but perhaps more if you're feeling generous and just can't seem to get rid of that money that's weighing you down. I would really appreciate any and all support, whether it's monetary or moral, it goes a long way, so thank you very much. And I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone that's donated so far. You know who you are, and I know who you are, but I can't remember all of your names, because as we covered last week, there's been a serious, serious amount of people giving money, and it's amazing, but we've still a bit to go. So, if you'd like to give some money to me for Cambridge so that I can make the world a better place, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie. Okay, guys, let's start the episode. Thanks for listening. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2 Background Part A, The Golden Age, Chapter 21 
Benjamin Disraeli's premiership was on the rocks following a stormy cabinet meeting on Saturday the 12th of January 1878. During the meeting it seemed as though nobody could compromise, as Lord Derby, the Foreign Secretary, and the Earl of Carnarvon, the Secretary for the Colonies, both remained diametrically opposed to stiff action against the Russians. The stiff action which was being proposed was the approval Disraeli was seeking to send the British Navy up the Dardanelles Straits, to prove to the Russians that Britain would be willing to defend Constantinople from her advances by force, if necessary. Darby had for so long opposed Disraeli's line in the previous months, because to him it always seemed more provocative than anything else, and was a far cry from the kind of conservative foreign policy which conservative statesmen were supposed to traditionally advocate. That meeting eventually ended with a compromise, but only because, had they not agreed to cooperate on some points, the government would almost certainly have broken down. Darby was able to water down Disraeli's originally stiff, forceful policy to a request to the Ottomans of whether the British fleet would be allowed to enter up the Straits, while Disraeli was satisfied with the provision of being able to tell the Ottomans that Britain intended to have a voice in the final settlement between the Turks and Russians. It was a delicate compromise, but it was progress nonetheless. This was where we last left the troubled British cabinet before we launched into our four-part special, wherein we examined the reactions, defences and speeches in the House of Commons and Lords to the Queen's speech on the 17th of January 1878. During those speeches, Disraeli's colleagues were forced to publicly deny the existence of any division within the cabinet. They rigorously defended the act of recalling Parliament early in the name of requesting an approval for credits, and all on the government benches made sure to stand up for what had been done so far in Britain's name. It was perhaps the Prime Minister, as well as the Secretary for India, Lord Salisbury, who stood out the most. Notable in his absence, without a doubt, was the Foreign Secretary himself, Lord Derby, who had battled with the Prime Minister and a cabal of other ministers over the previous years on the question of British foreign policy. Derby had for so long tried to rein Disraeli in, while Disraeli had clearly become consumed with ideas of prestige and insisted on making a number of bellicose statements and barely-veiled threats to the Russians. Were Darby to have spoken at the 17th of January 1878 parliamentary meetings, it would have been immensely interesting to have heard what he would have had to say. Would he really have been able to deny the existence of cabinet divisions, as his colleagues had done, when it was he who knew more than anyone else the virtual civil war that cabinet continued to experience? But Darby was not at the opening speeches of Parliament on the 17th of January, and for that matter, he remained absent for an entire week from cabinet meetings, because, so it seemed, the previous years of intense debate and struggle had taken its toll on his health, and he had become seriously ill. By Monday, the 14th of January, Darby was so ill that he couldn't get out of bed, and he could barely write either to communicate his opinion and resistance to the idea of sending the British fleet up the Straits, which many ministers remained focused on despite the previous compromise. With his major foil absent from cabinet proceedings, Disraeli could have had an easy time in pushing through his preferred policy. But Darby had, at least for the moment, left a residual atmosphere of compromise behind him, which was strong enough to prevent Cabinet from reversing all that had previously been decided in favour of a strong line. Queen Victoria, when she got word of the compromise reached in Cabinet and then disseminated to the Turks on the 12th of January, 
communicated to Disraeli on the 15th of January that Indecision and half-measures now would be the ruin of this country. You must be decided. The reverse will ruin us forever and not conciliate those who wish us to do nothing. Lord D will do nothing, originate nothing and besides is indiscreet and leaves our ambassadors abroad without instructions. What can be the cause of Lord Darby's incredible conduct? With Darby too ill to defend himself and Disraeli free from having to answer his challenges, the Foreign Secretary would have known that it was only a matter of time before Disraeli was able to claim to speak for the Foreign Secretary in his absence and attempt to bring the Cabinet back into his line of thinking. This was a possibility made more worrying for Darby when he learned late on the 15th, as did his colleagues, that Turkey had refused the polite request that Darby had helped to construct on the cabinet meeting of the 12th of January. The Turks, as any person informed of international relations could have understood, were well within their rights to refuse such a request for the British to be allowed to parade their huge navy up their vital, vulnerable waterway. But this was not how Disraeli saw their response, or how he painted it to his colleagues. Without Darby waiting in the wings to pose a counter-argument, even Salisbury was becoming susceptible to Disraeli's arguments. Where Darby saw Turkey simply abiding within the terms that the 1841 and 56 International Treaties of Sovereignty allowed, Disraeli, and much to the Prime Minister's undoubted glee, Salisbury, saw the refusal as evidence that the Russians were terrifying the Turks into making such a response. According to one cabinet minister, Salisbury by this point had become worn out with Russian duplicity, and therefore reasoned that because it was the Russians forcing such a response on the Turks, such a response should be ignored, and the British fleet should depart for the Dardanelles. Desperate at the news of this escalation, Darby insisted on sending a long memo to the meeting cabinet the next day on the 16th of January, despite the objections of his doctor. According to Darby, there were six reasons to object to sending the fleet up the straits. First, sending the fleet would place it in danger by putting it in a closed space with little room to manoeuvre. Anyone who was aware of the opening phases of the Battle for Gallipoli in spring 1915, where the British Navy among others attempted to rush the straits only to be met with brutally efficient Turkish guns on a disadvantaged position, could have seconded Darby's position on this point. Second, to Darby it was pointless to propose such measures unless the British and Turks were allies, and since the British remained neutral and had no intention, he hoped, of breaking this neutrality, such measures would never be agreed to and should only aggravate the situation. Third, Britain would be breaking international law if it did now send the fleet, and this would look very bad, especially since they had had a large role in making the treaties, which now defended Ottoman sovereignty. Think like Germany invading Belgium levels of hypocritically bad. Fourth, there was no plan of action if the Russians never went to Constantinople at all, so the fleet could potentially just sit there inactive and end up far from where it was needed. Fifth, should the Russians actually make a move on Constantinople, the British fleet would be at a distinct disadvantage if it was caught in the Dardanelles bottleneck. The best bet was to see what the Russians would do and react since the Royal Navy had more than enough force and firepower to overwhelm whatever surprise the Russians created. Sixth, and finally, it would be improper to make such an over-the-top gesture so long as the Russians and Turks were negotiating, which it was rumoured and then confirmed by Russian ambassador to London, Shuvalov, that they indeed were. 
This appeal for calm on Darby's part was coupled with the news that the Russians, at least, were willing to assent to British requests, and that the earlier British request on the 12th of January for the Russians not to enter Gallipoli was answered by St. Petersburg in the affirmative. The Russians would not occupy Constantinople either, unless they felt militarily compelled to do so, which at least could be construed to mean that the Ottoman capital was not the Russian end goal of the war, as had been initially feared. Faced with these tidbits of information, Cabinet began a gradual climb down from action. Much was made of the fact that holding back the fleet for a few hours was possibly detrimental to British interests, but losing Derby from the Cabinet, which they almost certainly would should the proposed action go ahead, would have been a far greater evil. Derby had done it. He had preserved both the peace of the international system and his own position in Cabinet, for the moment, and just in time for the opening of Parliament, where hopefully the Prime Minister would be distracted enough by its events that he would lay off acting too impulsively abroad for a short time. A flurry of activity in the Cabinet followed the opening of Parliament on the 17th of January 1878, which we covered in our last four-parter, as Disraeli sought to capitalise on fresh rumours that the Russians were in fact advancing on Constantinople, as well as reports from the Austrian ambassador in London that Austria-Hungary would be open to a British alliance to be directed against the Russians. In the grand scheme of Otto von Bismarck's Dreikaiserbund, these reports made absolutely no sense, but Disraeli believed that Count Andrassy, the Austrian Foreign Secretary, would be privy to an alliance that could be directed against their common enemy, and so sent out heavy feelers to that end on the 21st of January. Disraeli promised Andrassy financial aid, considerable British moral support, and the presence of actual British vessels outside Constantinople, which showed that despite everything, the Prime Minister still hadn't given up on the idea of sending the British fleet up the straits. All the Hungarian had to do was mobilise Austrian forces and join with Britain in presenting a threatening note to the Russians. Darby, who by then had made a full recovery, almost, was chosen to draft and send the message to Vienna. Initially, the Foreign Secretary Darby had opposed the move as completely unrealistic on numerous grounds but eventually he had consented on the basis that it would flush Andrassy out and hopefully prove to Disraeli that the hopes for such an alliance were baseless. Nonetheless, despite these attempts on damage control, Darby's sickness may have taken its toll, since, as John Charmony in his book Splendid Isolation noted, quote, Darby dispatched the telegram with the air of a man who did not expect to be in office much longer, end quote. Indeed, the next day when the reply was received, Darby noted that it essentially confirmed his suspicions. Andersi asked why Britain hadn't sent her fleet up the Straits yet, why she hadn't sent a force to occupy Constantinople, and why the British government hadn't asked Parliament for war credits to support these bellicose moves. Yet to Disraeli, this seemed like a great moment, because he understood the Hungarian to mean that if Britain undertook such steps, Austria would follow Britain as an ally, Perhaps he read it as he wanted to read it, but it must have been a convincing enough conclusion because he soon had the Queen, Salisbury and the usual war party on side in Cabinet. He also consulted the party's chief whip, who had just independently constructed a report on the state of public opinion, which seemed to conveniently confirm all that Disraeli had said. With such weapons behind him, Darby seemed hopelessly outgunned by the time a very confident Prime Minister called Cabinet together 
at short notice, on the 23rd of January 1878. Disraeli began this meeting effectively, invoking the evidence that the Chief Whip's report, a member of the Conservative pro-war party by the name of Sir William Hart Dyke, to cement his later claims. In a nutshell, Disraeli used the tried and tested arguments of the past, that unless she acted now the Conservative Party would be divided and lose subsequent elections as well as the respect of the people, that the support of a great majority of the public as well as most of the Liberals were behind her, that Russia could not be allowed to advance any further or it would ruin the equilibrium of the region, and that party members opposed to any such policies would be forced into line once such British measures worsened the Anglo-Russian relationship and perhaps created a kind of national emergency. War was now a more possible outcome than it had ever been, and as John Charmley noted, quote, The message was clear. If patriotism was not sufficient, if intellect did not lead you to share Disraeli's world view, then self-survival should surely be enough. Rely on Disraeli, the people's premier. End quote. Against this appealing fantasy that the Prime Ministers and others had helped to create, the weak protests of Carnarvon and the predictable but more restrained ones of Derby were like straws in the wind. The fleet would now be sent up the Dardanelles Straits, and the Foreign Secretary was certain that this would cause a great deterioration in the region. Furthermore, despite Disraeli's barrage of evidence, the Foreign Secretary doubted every word he had said and every claim he had made. Still, his own protestations had not been addressed, and still nothing within them had changed. Acting in this way would still violate international law, it would still force the Turks into a difficult position, and force the Russians into a corner, where they would have to either oppose the British or make a cowardly withdrawal, a course which national honour would surely prevent. Essentially, the Prime Minister had gotten his wish. Britain was about to issue a direct challenge to the Russians, disrespect the sovereignty of the Turks and poke their greatest rival with a big stick and dare him to poke back. As ministers debated the outcomes excitedly, Darby prepared his letter of resignation. On the morning of the 24th of January, 1878, Lord Darby sent the Prime Minister this letter. Making it clear that he had to go since he couldn't bring himself to approve of this new policy line, Darby injected the letter with nostalgic references to the old days, and claimed to hope that above all it wouldn't affect their old friendship. Addressing the scheming Prime Minister with far more respect than he, in my opinion, deserved, Darby claimed that he hoped Disraeli would get on better with a thoroughly harmonious cabinet. Adding that, he had no wish to make explanations at any time to any media organs or colleagues. The apparently now former Foreign Secretary also promised to stay away from the House of Lords for the moment, since Seeing his former leader and friend in person would be too painful and awkward. One could be forgiven for thinking that the two were breaking up, though in a sense I suppose they were. However, it soon became clear that the old friends may only be on a break rather than broken up, because the following day on the 25th of January, after holding back from replying to Darby's letter and the Queen's request to replace Darby with Salisbury in the Foreign Secretary office, the Prime Minister discovered that his carefully crafted House of Cards had come crashing down. Andrissy hadn't responded positively at all to the British actions, and seemed altogether hesitant to commit to an alliance after all. While thanks to conversations Lady Darby had had with Shuvalov, and one which Darby had after that, on the 24th of January, 
Shuvalov had felt compelled to ease the tension by first acquiring from St. Petersburg and then communicating to the London Foreign Office a rough outline of the Russo-Turkish settlement. First among its terms was a provision that the question of the Dardanelles Straits, as it was put, would be settled between a congress and the Russian Tsar. This meant that the British fleet was now sailing casually through a major sticking point for both belligerents, and an issue which would have to be debated by the entirety of Europe, which included Britain. The Ottoman Sultan, it transpired, had ignored the British requests because he was worried that if he accepted the British fleet up the Straits, the Russians would abandon the talks and resume the war. In other words, the act of the British sailing up the Dardanelles as if they owned the place now had the potential to be just as insulting and inflammatory as Derby had predicted, and the Prime Minister now had to implement some rapid, serious damage control. Added to these problems was the panic surrounding the rumours that Derby had gone. Among the Conservative backbenchers it caused great anxiety and panic, and led some cabinet ministers to reconsider their entire positions. Now was the moment that the chief whip, once so confident of success, hilariously produced another report which stated that, if Derby's untimely exit from the cabinet was learned of, then the party would suffer extensive electoral defeats down the road. The figure of Derby was simply too important as a name, as a pedigree, as a family and a public representative for Disraeli to simply throw him under the bus as he had tried to do. Disraeli would have to reluctantly agree that he now needed his former foil back, and that he would have little choice but to allow him to retake his old post of Foreign Secretary if he still wanted it, which Darby most certainly did. Darby remained intransigent over the following days to accept the Foreign Secretary posting or nothing. He recognised that he was now the one with the cards for once, and since he was no longer in a position where he would have to fight for his position, he waited to see what Disraeli would do to win him back. But Disraeli couldn't face his old friend after the shambles that he had allowed to pass had occurred. So he sent the next best thing, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Stafford Northcote, to Derby's London home. Northcote tried his best to persuade Derby to take Salisbury's vacant India posting, now that Salisbury had officially taken Derby's former job, or take Carnarvon's posting for the colonies, since the latter was also gone from Cabinet following his resignation. Derby was pleasant but firm, though he was susceptible to Northcote's argument that if he stayed away, foreign policy would be in the hands of the war party. Derby recognised that he was the only foil to his old friend. As matters are, he said, I am a check on the Prime Minister, and though I do not put much faith in them, I have the assurances of several of my colleagues that they will support me in opposing a war policy. Darby had been greatly offended by what had gone down, and it's hard to blame him, but he knew that his public duty came above his own slighted feelings, a level of maturity which some of his descendants would have done well to possess. And so, following a stiff letter to Sir Stafford Northcote on the 26th of January, he agreed to return as the Cabinet's Foreign Secretary again. As Darby knew full well though, the past few weeks of crisis meant that nothing in Cabinet would ever be the same again. Disraeli had been forced to back down, a spectacle which Darby knew the Prime Minister would have found immensely difficult to swallow. Lady Darby, despite this, told the still-resigned Carnarvon that The struggle has been dreadful. 
but reasoned with finality that it is right. Lord Darby, for better or worse, was about to rejoin the colleagues that had once helped force him out. The month of January alone had been enough to give one an ulcer, but as Darby knew full well, there was no indication that things were going to die down in the weeks to come. Queen Victoria could bemoan the reasons Northcote had given her for accepting Darby's return as Foreign Secretary, which included fears that he might join the Liberals, that the backbenchers would not stand to see him go, and that both the Liberals and Conservatives as a whole respected Darby too much to have him leave for the reasons that he had. However, Darby was right to have predicted the damage it would do to Conservative unity. Despite the hard work of the Chancellor of the Exchequer to bring the moderating influences of Darby back into Cabinet, things would never be the same. In the first meeting Darby attended since the whole mess had been passed by on the 27th of January 1878, the Foreign Secretary declined to take his former seat beside Benjamin Disraeli, which was now occupied by Salisbury. Instead he sat in the vacant seat left by Carnarvon, the recently resigned Secretary for the Colonies. It was a marked protest and represented a symbolic change in the winds of Cabinet opinion. Where once Salisbury had never defined himself as Disraeli's ideological successor or even nominal ally, by sitting in what was once Darby's seat, the Secretary for India underlined the fact that it was now he, not Darby, who was in the Prime Minister's confidence. Darby, by his failure or unwillingness to challenge Salisbury's assertion, signified his own acceptance of this change in opinion, as well as a recognition that things would never be the same again. The Foreign Secretary was now utterly alone against what was looking more and more like a Disraeli-Salisbury axis, and he reasoned that in this atmosphere, he could not survive for long. The British cabinet was forced to struggle through some more weeks of awkwardness and uncertainty both at home and abroad, as the Liberal opposition challenged Conservative policy, opening the way for impassioned and defensive remarks made by ministers in response. As John Charmley noted, quote, There is nothing like being assaulted from the moral high ground of Liberal rhetoric to induce in Conservatives a common feeling of nausea, end quote. And this included, surprisingly enough, Lord Derby himself, Though he continued to restrain the war party as best as he could, Darby was not so blind to the situation that he could not sense the way the wind was blowing. The growing perception continued to be put about as well that the Russian ambassador Shuvalov did not represent the majority of Russian opinion, and that whatever the seasoned Russian official told Darby in their many friendly and frank conversations, St. Petersburg was perfectly willing to plot another course in the meantime. This frustration, for want of a better term, that Darby felt in his position, being unable to either feel secure with Shuvalov's promises or rely on the soundness of cabinet decisions, prompted him to send a message to Shuvalov, and thus the Russians, either way. On the 31st of January he spoke at length in the House of Lords about how, in spite of his own reservations, he was willing to accept that under certain circumstances, sending the British fleet through the Dardanelles could be necessary. He said, I certainly never asserted that under no conceivable circumstances would it be right or proper for the British fleet to be sent up to Constantinople. Obviously, it is conceivable by me or by anybody else that circumstances might arise in which the sending of our fleet to Constantinople would be quite right, and in which, without in any manner endangering the general peace, it might be for the interests of humanity that such a step should be taken. 
It was during this day in the House of Lords that a great number of individuals spoke of the rumours swirling around regarding a secret Russo-Turkish peace. An armistice was indeed signed between the Russians and Turks on the 31st of January, but its terms had not yet been made public and would not be for at least another week, which of course opened the way for speculation and rumour in the meantime. A peace signed on exclusively Russian terms was the central aspect of what cabinet ministers referred to when they claimed that Shuvalov didn't speak for Russia. The Russians, many ministers felt, were keeping quiet in an official capacity and continued to pressure the Ottomans at the gates of Constantinople because plenipotentiaries from each empire were working out a peace that would end the war solely in Russia's favour. Such an outcome was something that Disraeli anticipated and Darby feared. February 1878 began with riots throughout the country, as conservative constituent offices were burdened with groups of enthusiastic men urging government action, and in some cases the urging turned ugly. Only rumours of what Russia was negotiating with Turkey were available, and so people were allowed to speculate and let their imaginations run wild about the extent of Russia's diplomatic victory. In desperation did Darby seek common ground with other European leaders over the notion of organising a European conference to sort out Russia's conflict with the Turks. But though he did receive favourable responses, this would all be for nothing if Russia would not join in. On the 4th of February, Darby confirmed that London would attend a hypothetical conference, and on the following day Shuvalov, as well as reps from Germany, Italy and France, assented in turn. Darby seemed at first to have dodged a bullet once again, but diplomacy soon fell behind the pace of the rumours. On the 6th of February, communications and thus news from Turkey was shut off, thanks to the failing of Constantinople's telegraph lines. On the 7th, some papers were reporting that the Turkish capital had fallen to the Russians. Although reasonably confident that matters could not have gotten this out of hand in the East, Darby was beginning to wonder how much longer he could sustain such insurmountable public and private pressures all by himself. As furiously patriotic crowds gathered in the vicinity of Parliament, demanding the government do something now that Russia's national dream had been achieved and the world had been thrown out of balance, the Foreign Secretary conceived in the afternoon of the 7th of February that the mere fact that our ambassadors cut off and that the Russians are still advancing seems to require the presence of the fleet at Constantinople. The concern now grew in Cabinet that if Britain didn't act now, other states would send their fleets in first. The image of, say, the Italian or French squadrons arriving at Constantinople before Britain's was a frightening possibility, since it would surely shatter the image British policymakers had cultivated since the Crimean War, that the Dardanelles was her sphere of influence. War seemed inevitable then, by the late afternoon of the 7th of February, even as the beleaguered Darby sought to voice a controlled warning to the House of Lords amidst the hysteria. Having opened the meeting with appeals for calm, Darby was passed another communique while one of his colleagues was mid-speech, and once this colleague sat down, Darby bolted upright and enlightened those present on the utter whirlwind of events, saying, The Russian ambassador within the last few minutes has placed in my hands a communication to the following effect. <clears throat> the Russian ambassador, having addressed to his government an inquiry whether it was true that the Russian army was advancing on Constantinople and had taken a fortified position, forming part of the line of defence of Constantinople, 
has received from Prince Gorchakov the following reply, dated St. Petersburg, February 7th, and I quote, The order has been given to our military commanders to cease hostilities along the whole line in Europe and in Asia. End quote. The reply goes on to say, quote, There is not a word of truth in the rumours which have reached you. End quote. What those rumours are is not stated. Literally, the contradiction may only apply to the capture of some fortified position, and therefore it does not, I think, absolutely contradict the statement I read from Mr. Layard. But undoubtedly it does, to a considerable extent, modify what from that statement would appear to be the situation. And having given to your lordships the one statement, I felt bound to place before you the other. In other words, as Darby here tried to infer, because all Russian units had been ordered to stand down across all fronts, it was surely quite impossible that Russian units had managed to capture Constantinople. Darby's contacts with Shuvalov seemed to have snatched peace from the jaws of war once again. If not for this coming message, British units may have retaliated against nothing more than rumours. But Darby was not free yet. Though it was established that the Russians hadn't captured the Turkish capital and that Russian soldiers were advancing no more excessively than the terms of their armistice with Turkey allowed, concerns were still raised over the damage to Britain's prestige which would result, if the British fleet was not sent up the Dardanelles, to defend British interests at this delicate time. It was, of course, the same belligerent argument as before, sending the fleet to Constantinople for the sake of British interests and honour, and simply because she had to do something in the current situation, regardless of the consequences. On the 8th of February cabinet meeting, Darby was able to win again though, using the fact that British and Italian reps had assented to the British requests to send up the fleet to his advantage, Darby argued persuasively that this confirmed Britain was not isolated in her policy, and thus she did not need to act so hastily. Furthermore, Darby argued that only a portion of the fleet needed to be sent up the straits, since this would appease those that argued the government was doing nothing, while it would simultaneously not spook the Russians too much. Disraeli was furious at being undercut again in his apparent time of triumph and glory, and Victoria was again appalled that her least favourite minister had again managed to win the day. In a letter heavy with ink smears and underlining, Queen Victoria insisted that, Thanks to the cowardly conduct of Lord Darby, I feel deeply humiliated. My first impulse is to lay down the thorny crown, which I have no satisfaction in retaining if the position of this country is to remain as it is now. To this, Disraeli seems to have reached the end of his patience. Charmley noted that the Prime Minister complained back to the Queen of a lack of allies, the presence of the Atrocitarians and the divisions which still plagued Cabinet. Disraeli alluded to the fact that war credits had been approved on the crazy day of the 7th of February, and reasoned that if she was so dissatisfied with her Prime Minister, she could always dismiss him and appoint a new government from the Liberals. Queen Victoria was silent after that, at least for a time. One thing Victoria had captured, though, were the rumours now regarding Darby. Darby had, as we saw, explained his position as willing to take strong measures if necessary, his idea of necessary just differed notably from Disraeli's. Yet the 7th of February hadn't been good for his reputation, and people now talked of the man's lack of honour, his softness and want of patriotism, which made him... 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Weak. Even the fact that he had relied on the Russian ambassador for proper news about the Russians, as any foreign secretary should be expected to do, was turned against him. Darby was the weak-willed man unable to stop his wife's affair with the slimy Russian, while he himself continued to suffer nervous breakdowns and drink to excess to compensate. As the opposition from Darby continued to manifest itself over the following days, with Disraeli insisting that the British send the fleet through the straits, and Darby objecting, the Prime Minister would have known that his Foreign Secretary was now more vulnerable than ever to the character assassination led by the country clubs, the former party allies and media. Unlike his former friend, Disraeli was more than willing to aid others in landing the killer blow on Darby's conservative career. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.